Father, it's so good to gather with believers. Lord, it's so good to worship you. Come on. Yeah, clap. Come on. He's God. This is Jesus. Yeah. Father, I pray that the joy of the Lord would fill this house. Father, I pray that the laughter of the redeemed would echo off these concrete walls. Jesus, Jesus, we love you. We praise you. Holy Spirit, wash over this place. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We worship you. Amen. Man, good morning. Let's give Jesus a hand, huh? Wow. So good. Guys, thank you. Hi. You made it in the cold. Let me welcome you if you're joining us online. We are thrilled that you're here with us. Okay, um, I'm going to jump right in if I can. Uh, we are in John 2, and um, how many of you know that you can't interpret the Bible except with what? The Bible. So you use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Um, what's fascinating is the Bible was written by so many different authors over so many different years, over 1,500 different years, and yet it all rises to this beautiful crescendo of unison um, that lifts up this person, Jesus amazing. So uh, we're in John 2, but I'm going to do probably what I I often do, and I'm going to open up with a passage out of 1 Peter. So 1 Peter 4. See if I can find it here. 4.17. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. Okay. Uh, Now, I realize, especially for people online, when I ask questions or I sort of go into a rhetorical mode, um, it can be difficult. Um, But here's really what we want to do here is we want to stir your heart, stir your mind, um, inspire you even to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to sift your heart so that you can embark upon your own journey with Jesus. Okay? This isn't necessarily like, um, come and, you know, we're going to spoon feed. No, no, no. This is actually, it's intense to sort of um, rattle your mind, rattle your heart, um, um, even call upon the Holy Spirit through the empowering of the Lord Jesus to actually rise up in your own heart so that you begin to go, okay, Lord, what does this mean for me? What does it mean now? Okay, so judgment begins with the household of God. We could also say discipline begins with the household of God. Okay, so who's the household of God? We are. Okay, so how do you think God feels when the church goes kicking and screaming and pointing fingers and being ugly to people who are out there? Maybe you should ask. Ask God. Okay, so if judgment or discipline is going to begin here, all right, then let's, um, let's flip this over. And I'm going to look at Hebrews. We're going to enter with a second verse. Hebrews 12, verses 5, the latter half of verse 5 and 6. 
This is the Apostle Paul writing, probably. And he says, my son or my daughter, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Hmm. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Okay, now flip that. If you're not disciplined, what does that mean? If your parents don't discipline, we'll let that one unfurl, okay? Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his child. So if you're not accepted as his son or daughter, what are you not going to get? Discipline. Okay, interesting. All right, John 2. We're going to read verse uh, 13, and we're going to go to all the way to the verse um, 25. This is where Jesus clears the temple. Um, one of my favorite um, historical pastors in the city of Wilmington uh, was a guy named Horace Hilton. And it's interesting, I, don't, I, can't, uh, I can't attest for every little bit of this story, and I'm not going to unfold it totally, but really interesting guy, because as I understand it, he was um, some sort of associate pastor at a really big church in Charlotte. And I think big, wealthy church, maybe four or 5,000 people, I don't know. And uh, he was back um, stage or in his office or whatever one morning, and he was preparing his message and tightening his tie and putting on, you know, doing his three-piece suit and getting it all ready. And he was studying his message, and he was reading. And I don't know what passage it was. I'd actually love to know, but I don't know. And as, the, as my understanding of the history goes, he actually recognized sitting backstage, getting ready to go on the platform to speak to this big pompous, beautiful church, that he was not a Christian. And as the story goes, he actually got on his knees and goes, Lord Jesus, I have never seen this before. I have been proclaiming that I'm a you know, professional Christian. I'm a pastor. I don't even know you. And he backstage, he got on his knees and wept and gave his life to King Jesus. It wasn't shortly thereafter that he uh, left Charlotte and he came down here and he started um, or continued a little church that was over here at Monkey Junction. And um, I don't know that he was so great of a leader, but he was a great facilitator, and he empowered people to like go and experience their gifts and God's power in and through them. And he went on to lead one of the biggest churches in the city in the 80s. Powerful, powerful, powerful. We were sitting in, this is all going somewhere. We were sitting in the men's breakfast this week, and... Um, who's becoming a dear friend, Bob Johnson back here spoke up. And Bob says, I was baptized when I was nine, and I was teaching Sunday school when I was 50. How many years is that? 41. And he gave his life to Jesus as a 50-year-old. So powerful. A couple people texted me and said, I couldn't believe what Bob said. That was amazing. Okay, God disciplines those he loves. Okay, uh, if you're not disciplined, let's go there. You're not loved. Okay, um, God's discipline or his judgment begins with who? Say me. That's humbling. Okay, so for Jesus to launch his ministry, it only makes sense that he would do what? Where does it begin? 
the church. This was the expression of the church. Now, a couple little background things as we enter to read this, because I think it'll be more powerful. Um, there are several different views of Jesus clearing the temple, and we're not going to get fully lost in them, but I at least want to mention them. So Matthew, Mark, um, and Luke all mention a cleaning or a clearing of the temple where Jesus goes in. Now, do you happen to know, does anybody know where those are in those books? Like, like uh, sequentially, where does the clearing of the temple happen? At the end of those books. And so in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it happens at the end. Or excuse me, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it happens at the very end. John is the only book where it happens at the beginning. And so there's two things, at, at probably two possibilities at play here. And uh, contextually, according to the text, I think either one is accurate. So let me just open it for you. It's possible that what John is doing here by putting Jesus clearing the temple at the beginning of his ministry is not that John is, um, is, is not as concerned about the factual sequence of events, but he's more concerned about the theological truth and the call to ministry. And so he's saying, look, this happened at the, it, this is the essence of Jesus's ministry. So I'm going to park it at the beginning of my gospel. That's option number one. Option number two is that Jesus actually cleared the temple twice, one at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. I'm going to lean that way. Okay. I think it just is like this, this beautiful bookends of the ministry of Jesus that he would enter and leave cleaning the church. And how many of you know, we as the church, we get ugly and we get judgmental and we get mean and we get nasty and we don't like people that are different than us. Come on. I don't like what happens to me when I'm in church sometimes. Did the pastor say that? He did. All right, let's read. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, refresher, what's Passover? We just preached through Exodus, or most of Exodus. Passover was when they slaughtered the lamb, and they took blood of the lamb on a bunch of hyssop, and they put it where? Yeah. And then, so they put it on the doorpost, on both, you know, up over both sides. And then they were instructed to take the lamb and roast it. And then after they roasted it, what do they do? Eat it. So you get this imagery of Jesus uh, being beside you, over you, around you, image of, of um, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud before you, behind you, and then you're actually eating the lamb. So inside of you, you get this whole picture of, oh my goodness, I am in Jesus and Jesus is in me. So Jesus goes um, up to the temple um, for the Jewish Passover. So there's something I think absolutely, um, it, it's, it's probably most clearly an impressive statement about the authority of Jesus and the crisis that Judaism is currently in. So Judaism is the way the, the people of God or the Israelites are currently walking out their faith. And in, in many ways, uh, what's heartbreaking about where the Jewish people are at this point in time is what started as a relationship. Remember Moses in the wilderness? It actually says, I think it's Exodus 33, 11, that God spoke to Moses face to face as a person speaks to a, a friend. Like what? 
So what began even as relational, even in the Old Testament, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and the Essenes, they all come along, mostly Pharisees and Sadducees at this point, they come along, but they're making all of these rules. And so suddenly um, the Mosaic laws are now totally devoid of any relationship and have become all about um, external rules. So, so when I say religion, what I'm talking about is I'm talking about cleaning up the outside of the person in hopes that you're going to make yourself pleasing to God. God, okay? When I'm talking about relationship, it's, it's um, acknowledging and actualizing that you can't make yourself good enough to please a holy God, so you allow and you surrender your life so that King Jesus can do it in you and through you. That's the difference between relationship and religion, okay? You'll hear me say things like, you can be, re- you can be religious or you can be relational, but you can't be both, all right? People who are religious, I don't know about you, but I want to go, just not very interested, Go ahead with your religion. Don't care. I want to walk with Jesus. Okay. So <clears throat> what's happened, though, is at during Passover, um, some scholars actually say two or two and a half million people come to Jerusalem. Like, Jerusalem's little. Have you ever been to Jerusalem? I mean, it's this little city at two and two and a half million people. That's like, I think Raleigh-Durham has around two million people. I think Chicago has two and a half million people. So for Jesus to show up into little tiny Jerusalem when some two million people have descended upon it for this annual Passover, and then he goes in to the very um, focal point of of religion and Judaism at this point, which is the temple. So the temple is the place where you have like the purpose of God, the presence of God, the power of God. It is the foci or the focal point from which everything emanates. And Jesus is going to roll into that focal point and make an enormous mess. I love Jesus. Let me say with some trepidation here, we today are not much different. In other words, when something works in church, we assume God's in it, and we tend to copycat that thing, hoping that if we keep doing it, God's going to keep staying with us. That's what religion is. You keep doing the same old thing, hoping God's going to show up in the same way. And he's this fluid, relational God. His character doesn't change. His word doesn't change. But the way he moves in and through a generation changes. Okay, so the question and what we're always looking for is, Lord, what are you doing? So we don't show up to lead a church with great business principles. No, no, no. We go, Lord, what are you doing? We're going to be careful, even as a lead team, to sit, watch, and wait, and then follow. That's how you walk with Jesus. So, okay, back to our text. Uh, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So now remember, I'm not going to I'm not going to put this particular clearing of the temple in the same context as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm going to treat it as separate. We we could look at those, but today we're just going to treat this as a standalone passage. Now, okay, so in the Old Testament, did it require that people would sacrifice cattle, sheep, and doves? Yes. Others were sitting at tables exchanging money. In the Old Testament, uh, people were required to even give money or temple tax in a certain um, currency or format. And so, technically speaking, were all of these people doing the right thing? Yes. That's where this thing gets tricky. It's like, okay, 
if all of these people are, they're, they're technically fulfilling uh, what is written in the Old Covenant, um, and they're, they, they even probably think they're okay, they're doing it right, why then does Jesus come in like he comes in? So let's, let's keep going. Verse 15. So he made a whip out of cords. What? And he drove all from the temple cords, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Oh, man. He made a whip out of cords. Okay, how might you make a whip out of cords? Did you say braid? I, I, I would guess he probably braided. So I'm guessing... Jesus rolls into Jerusalem. He sees what's happening and what rises up within him. He's righteously angry. Okay. Now, I love this. You got to get this. You got to make application into your own life because it is so powerful. We're going to dig on it in just a minute. The discipline of God. Does Jesus act immediately? Okay. So he withdraws, apparently, I'm assuming, my guess, this is Michael, it's not in the text, but my guess is he hiked outside Jerusalem, got on a little hill where he could see what was going on, and what did he do? He braided that leather into a whip. Slowly. Surely. And then he takes that whip, and he goes back into the temple, and it says he drove all from the temple courts. He cleaned house. Can you imagine today, like, Mike was up here doing announcements. Can you, can you imagine if Mike walked into a church with a bullwhip? Or, or me, you know, funny bald Michael walked into a church with a bullwhip and starts yelling and cleaned it out? Now, like, go there a second. You go, oh, Michael, it's different. We're in America. No, it's not. Jesus rolled into the most high holy place on the most high holy period of time, Passover, with people who were largely doing, at least externally, what they were supposed to be doing, although I'd argue heart postures were devoid of truly seeking a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he created this whip and he drives people out. Like that is craziness. And I think it says, it says so clearly, so let's cut this uh, finely. I don't think he hits any of the sheep or cattle. I don't think he hits any of the people. But it, much like maybe a cowboy or cowgirl drives cattle, right? You're making a noise and you're moving, you know, moving them one way or moving the other. He, he moves people out of the temple so that other people can come in. Now, God is always going to clear out the religious, judgmental, angry, I'm going to look down my nose, holier-than-thou kind of people out of the church so that he can draw new ones in. That is what he does. He will not tolerate arrogant, angry, judgmental uh, Christians. Now, are there, are there churches out there like that? Yes. Yes. We forgive them, and we move on, and we pray for them, and the Lord will deal with them. Because judgment begins where? There you go. God's business, right? Love them, bless them, be kind to them. Okay, there you go. All right, so he makes this whip out of cords, and he drives them out of the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Okay, so let's wrestle with this a minute. 
some of what I think is going on here is in Judaism, you have a group of people who have forsaken the delight of relationship with God, and they have embraced the duty of religion, okay? So you've got a religious system that, you remember where Jesus said, my burden is easy and my yoke, so a yoke's that thing that goes over like oxen, and, and then oxen pull the cart or pull the whatever it is, but the, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is Light. So you've got these religious people who've come along and they've said, I got an idea. Let's make the burden really heavy and let's make it really difficult and let's make it really hard to walk with God and let's actually make it like an us and them thing where we're up here on this high holy platform and they're down there and they can't touch us and we're the special ones and they're not and then let's tax them a lot and we'll make money. You know, it becomes a disaster really fast, right? I mean, what a mess. So it's in some ways, you've got a group of people who have forsaken the delight of relationship uh, for the religion of duty or, or work. So they're attempting to, to clean up the outside of themselves to appease God. So what's amazing about Jesus is, is Jesus always deals with the heart. Um, in fact, I think anytime we as humans make rules, uh, it, it begins to try to accomplish externally what only God can accomplish internally. Let's keep going. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove the authority of all that you do? Okay, let's dig here a minute before we keep going. Um, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bring full revelation on all this to our spirits, to our minds, that you would change us, that you would form us, that you would allow us to be a group of people that walks in the delight of relationship with you and responds to that delight, not out of duty and performance. Father, would you even break that bondage over this church, over the church? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It was actually a Matthew eleven twenty eight where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants to break the back of burdensome religion and replace it with the joy and lightness of relationship. Why do we come together as a church and worship? Because there is something in worship that actually breaks the weight of religion and invites and invokes the potency of delight and relationship. That's why we sing. That's why we worship. That's why we pause and even fix our gaze upon him. That is the essence of what it means to walk, I think, with Jesus. So let's, let's open up the door here on this, this discipline of God. And I'm going to try, and it's always dangerous when we take um, the, the, the context of the Bible and then we apply it to our lives. But let's open up discipline here for just a few minutes. Um, if God disciplines those he loves, okay, let's, let's, let's fully go here. How do we as parents discipline our kids? How do we as a judge discipline the one we're sitting in who's sitting in our court, Right? How do we discipline? All right, let's, okay, Lord Jesus, give us wisdom here. Okay, in our house, um, I believe, uh, and this is controversial at this point, but we believe in spanking our kids. 
I think there's a small window of time between age three or four, it depends how old, up till seven. And, and that's, in my opinion, the time where you ought to be spanking your kids. Now, let's talk about this just a minute. And I'm, I am going to intentionally invite you all as parents, as grandparents, if you're a grandparent and you had kids, I'm inviting you to even look back introspectively at the way you disciplined. If you're a parent, I'm inviting you to introspectively look at the way you're disciplining now. Um, so now when you send a child a timeout, when you discipline a child, if you feel like you're going to spank a child on the bottom, so Abby and I have a, just a little wooden spoon, we'd spank a child a couple times on the bottom or the upper thigh. How did Jesus discipline? He walked into Jerusalem. He saw the mess. What did he do? Walked away. When he was braiding that cord, what do you think is happening? I think the Holy Spirit is actually sifting his heart to make sure he's not about to go in there in fleshly anger. When we discipline our kids... Abby and I always have a time period from when whatever happened, happened, and when the discipline happens. Because I think if you're hot and you're angry and you're yelling and you're snorting and you're impatient and you're blah, 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 you know, come on, you all know what I'm talking about, you're going to miss it. I think you're going to make a mess. So I think it is very important, no matter what discipline you give or you do, that there's this space and breadth of time before you actually discipline those kids. In my opinion, discipline, and I think Jesus models it right here, should be done only after the intensity of the moment has passed. James 1.20 actually says, human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, how many times as adults have we let things go on too long with our kids? And we get angry. And sometimes we spill over, lash out, whatever it is. Now, what do we do when that happens? Ask forgiveness. Abby and I just sit down with our kids and go, man, I was impatient. I was unkind. Would you forgive me? how powerful it is when you sit down with a child. It's not that you as parents have to be perfect, but when you actually sit down with a child and you acknowledge that you're not perfect, you actually break the expectation over their lives that they have to be little perfect people. You give them the freedom to fail. You teach them to appropriate the forgiveness of Christ Jesus, the grace of Christ Jesus, and then you empower them to be little relational beings, not raising Pharisees. You want to raise a Pharisee, you tell them that you're perfect all the time and you act perfect and you never ask forgiveness for anything. Now, some of you parents or grandparents are sitting here and you're going, oh my goodness, I was X, Y, Z with my kids. Let me invite you into something. Walk out of here if you were angry with your kids, if you disciplined harshly, if you disciplined by yelling, if you, maybe you hit somebody, you, you fill in the blank. Write them a letter. Ask their forgiveness. Own it. Invite that child into, even if it's an adult child, into relationship now. Okay? So you're all of a sudden modeling, even if you weren't perfect then, what you're modeling is applying the cross of Christ, the peace of Christ, the joy of Christ into the relationship now, and just own it. Write them a letter. Will you forgive me? And what you actually are inviting that adult now child into is to break the pattern that you've set. You hear me? This is so powerful. Now, all right, let's take a step outside of this. Let's say you're a child or you're an adult now sitting in here and you were the product of harsh, unloving, or even abusive discipline. What do you do? 
Let me show you. Reach your hands out. Open them up. Jesus relinquished the right to hold on to his life. Jesus released the right to hold on to his life. He's called you to release the right to hold on to your anger and your bitterness against people who've hurt you. Now, I'm not saying it's necessarily an easy journey. You may be sitting here and go, Michael, I was abused sexually. I was abused physically. I was yelled at. I was... All of that can be taken under the blood of Christ Jesus and healed through a journey. It's a process. But you take it to him and you begin to release. And you know what I often pray is, Lord, would you empower me to forgive? Do you know why I pray that? Because I don't want to forgive. Just plain and simple. I want to hold on to my anger. And I love it because I can roll in with Jesus and I go, Jesus, I'm angry. I'm hurt. I don't want to forgive. I don't have to change the way I feel. I just pray that you would help me and you would empower me to forgive X, Y, Z. And what do I do? Relinquish the right to hold on. Okay. Couple, couple things on discipline here that could help some of you who are young families. Chew the meat and spit out the bones as with all this because this isn't gospel truth. It's the way Abby and I have navigated a few things. A couple tools, and I'm not going to go super into it. If you want to talk more about it, feel free to grab Abby or me. We'd love to tell you about it. We've got a couple things in our house. We don't just spank. Um, we also use something we call uh, the wise choice jar. And the wise choice jar is all about catching our kids doing something good, doing something right. That's right. So the only rule about the wise choice jar is they can't tell us they did it right. <laughs> that was a wise choice. No, 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 no. That's not the way it works. But listen, God always uses as he disciplines a combination of reward and loss, okay? So we use this wise choice jar when the wise, everybody in the, in the house um, participates in filling up the wise choice jar. And when it's filled, we go to movies or we go to the ice cream shop or we do whatever the kids want to do. That's kind of the way we've always done it. So uh, the other thing we do is we have this, we had a green bowl, which is really funny, but we had a green bowl and we had an art day um, and we'll have the kids color um, on little uh, three by five cards all the stuff they love. Riding bikes, chewing gum, dessert, going to the aquarium, going to the beach, going out on the boat, all the stuff, right? And then when there's consistent loss, we actually have them choose what they're going to lose. This keeps Abby and I from losing our temper and our cool and not liking who we are. You hear me? All right? That's, that's what's going on here. Now, let me invite you into another thing that we do. And some of you are going to go, this is crazy. We actually plan um, loss. Let me tell you why. We got to the point with our older ones where stuff was happening, consistent behaviors, and they were losing things that guess who, who wanted to do those things? I did. I was like, I wanted to go to the zoo with you. Like, I am really disappointed. And Abby and I were getting in fusses in our marriage because we were like, doggone it, these kids are losing stuff that we wanted to do. So we got smart, and here's what we did. Here's what we did. We go, okay, they've got this issue. We know we keep seeing it. We keep correcting it. Nothing's changing, okay? Um, so we're going to plan a day, and we really meant it, uh, where we'll take the ferry to Southport and we'll whatever, have lunch and knock around and then come back. So we tell them this is going to happen on Saturday, right? 
What do we know is going to happen between now and Saturday? That same behavior is going to rear its ugly head, okay? But what this does is Abby and I look at each other and go, hey, we'd love to go to Southport with the kids. We know it's not going to happen, so we're going to plan it, but we know we're going to punt it, okay? So already, Abby and I are going, okay, so, so we're going to actually, you know, whatever, mow the grass and prune the bushes or hang pictures or whatever we're doing at the house, right? So in our heads, privately, we're talking about this, but with the kids, we're going, okay, we're going to Southport. This is going to be great. It's not a lie. If they didn't exhibit that behavior, we would have totally gone where? Southport. But what it does is it keeps me and Abby from being disappointed. You hear me? So we're planning to go to Southport, and guess what the kids do? Sure enough, the behavior rears its head. We lose Southport. We punt it. We go, okay, we'll reschedule for three or four weeks. But listen to me, church, this is so important. God is this gracious, loving Father, and he guides us with a combination um, of uh, loss and difficulty and reward. He, he guides us with both. He guides the church with both. He guides individuals with both. And I'm convinced that we as parents and grandparents have a responsibility to empower our kids with freedom. Like a lot of people in churches think, well, if I take freedom away and I control them into this little box, that they're going to do well. They might do well for a little while, and then they're going to go off to college or get a job or get a cell phone or get a computer, and they're going to go bonkers. You hear me? Like, like our job as parents is not to control our kids. Our job as parents is to help our kids steward their freedom. Like, it's way easier to control somebody. It's why we all like religion. Just tell me what to do. No, 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 no. Teach me, oh, Lord, how to steward my freedom. That's relationship. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? <sighs> Jesus, help us. Okay. If you want to talk more about any of those things, I think that's uh, all of those I'm happy. Abby and I, either of us would happily discuss with you. But it's the way in which we navigate um, teaching kids to exercise freedom, okay? That's our role as parents, as grandparents, even as church leaders. We want people to walk in here and smell and taste the freedom of the Lord. You don't have to do anything or act a certain way or worship a certain way. No, no, no. We just want you to get into the journey with Jesus and walk with him and let him fill and change and mold your heart. That's it. That's what this thing is all about. Okay, let's keep going. Um, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, let's pause here. We didn't, let's talk about the tables just a second. Um, I don't think that there is anywhere in Scripture where the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is more inaccurate. Just being honest. So Jesus, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, is a tecton. Uh, which means um, we've all translated it as a carpenter, which is probably partly right. But what is the primary building material in the Middle East, in Israel? Stone. So I would actually say that, that, that it's better to translate tecton, Jesus as a carpenter, is Jesus as a builder, Jesus as a general contractor, Jesus as a stonemason. Now, uh, do you know any stonemasons? Anybody? Come on. Christopher knows one. Anybody else? Okay. Have you ever shake, shaken the hand of a stonemason? What's that hand feel like? 
I mean, it's a serious hand. Like, there's always some, I mean, it is like thick and meat hand. It's like, you know, it's this, this is a side and it's funny. But I've been a landscaper for many years. I'm still a landscaper. And I'm noticing as I'm doing more church and less dirt moving that my hands are actually getting softer. I'm losing my hair and my hands are getting softer. And I'm like, Jesus, help me. Okay, so, uh, that's right, laugh away. Um, so, uh, Jesus is a tecton. Jesus would have been a builder. He would have been a contractor. He would have probably been a stonemason. And as a stonemason, he spends his day moving rock. Now, if you spend your days moving rock, tell me about your physical build. Not the skinny little weak Jesus we see depicted in middle age art. Okay? No, no, no. I'm telling you, my guess is that he was like a stacked guy with a big old thick hand, and he'd spent 30 years being this and doing this. And so when he goes in, now let's talk about these tables a second. They don't have these little tube tables that we have that weigh 11 pounds, right? What kind of table are they going to have? It's a big table. Like that thing's going to be a big old piece of, you know, whatever, olive wood, and it's going to be a solid table. When it says Jesus rolled through there and through the tables, like get the full imagery, This is like Jesus rolling into the most holy place on planet earth. It is the focal point where the purpose of God, the presence of God, and the power of God meet with the people of God and emanate from that place. And he rolls in, cracking a bullwhip and throwing these huge wooden tables. This is like powerful Jesus. This is like, and you don't get this idea that he's even yelling. He's just cracking this whip. He's throwing these tables. And then he says... Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Return to the delight of relationship. Stop being angry, ugly, religious people. If Jesus showed up today and walked down the streets of Wilmington or the United States of America and walked into churches... What do you think he would do? Before we planted Saltbox, one of the things that I wanted to do was go to the ruins of the seven churches that are uh, written about. There's archaeological ruins for all seven of them, but that are written about in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And I wanted to do that because five of those seven churches got a rebuke. How many of you know that's not very good odds mathematically? Truth, I don't think there's anything scarier than taking on the spiritual leadership and pastoring a group of people. I think it's the most dangerous occupation on planet Earth. On your face. Okay. Verse 18. The Jews responded to him. Now, you've got to remember, they're incredulous. They're going, we're doing everything that the Mosaic law commands. By what authority have you come in here and, like, messed up our day? What sign can you show us to prove your authority? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. What temple are we talking about? So what he's coming in and saying with this whip as he's throwing tables is he's going, the temple of God has been historically the place of God, the presence of God, the purpose of God, the central point from which the presence of God emanates out and affects the, the, the world, and no longer is God dwelling in this temple made by human hands. He's rolling in and he's saying, I am the temple. 
And not only am I the temple as I go to the cross and die and then break the back of death and hell and I rise again, I'm going to fill my people and the house of God is no longer a physical house. The house of God is now here and we become carriers of the very presence and purpose of God into everywhere we go. This is the Jesus that came and wrecked human religion so that he could establish human relationship. This is the God that went, I'm going to breathe on this Jesus, fully God and fully man, and I'm going to inhabit him, and he's going to tear down the old way of doing things and establish this new covenant of relationship. Now, let's deal with this just a minute, and then we're going to move into communion. Why is it that Jesus reserved his harshest criticism and scathing rebukes for all the pastors? What did Michael say, pastors? Why is it that Jesus reserved all of his harshest criticism, all of his most um, difficult comments for the religious leaders of the day? says 89-year-old Bob Johnson. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. You never get Jesus yelling at a prostitute. You never get Jesus criticizing a homeless person. You never get Jesus angry who's addicted to drink or drugs. You never get Jesus um, criticizing someone who is downtrodden or feels outcast. You never get Jesus being ugly or making a snide comment to a foreigner or an illegal alien. You never get Jesus being unkind uh, to someone who is near their breaking point or has a different perception of themselves than he did or you do. Never. This is the Jesus that champions the lonely and the broken and the orphan and the fatherless and the illegal alien. And the list goes on and on. This is the Jesus that comforts the broken, will never break a dimly burning wick or a bruised reed. This is the Jesus that comes and he reserved his harshest criticism for the angry, ugly, judgmental religious leaders. That is humbling. That is humbling, and I hope that you will let the Holy Spirit sift your own heart, and when words come out of your mouth about those people, you hear me? How often do we talk about those people, whatever those people is? You fill in the blank. This is the God that welcomes those people. Oh, that we have a church full of those people. Why he picked me, bald, white, boring, I don't know. <laughs> Touche. Okay, I got to move us to communion. Um, let's see here. Let me, let me, while I'm on this, let me, let me make a... Uh, this is my bow and arrow here. Let me make a bullseye shot. Some of you are so politically minded, you're missing the heart of Jesus. Okay? Jesus did not come, never made one comment about reforming Rome. Jesus oriented everything around the transformation of the human heart. Now, I think he knew, I know that he knew, because from Genesis to Revelation, he knew that when human hearts are transformed, you transform education and politics and, and families and everything. 
but there's not a focus on the reformation of Israel or overthrowing Rome. Be very careful that we don't equate political reformation as the transformation of the human heart. They are not the same, and America is not the kingdom of God. It is not. When a country spirals, the kingdom and the church rises up. It's a funny... Transformed people transform people. It's the way it is. Okay. Let's end the the reading here. Uh, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Verse 20, they replied... It's, they're angry here. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Notice they didn't believe it ahead of time. <laughs> Verse 23, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. I think verse 24 and 25 lead better into chapter 3. I would have put that little title in a different spot, just me. So we're going to leave that and and head into chapter 3 with that. But I want you to hear something. Um, Jesus' actions here, are they're, they're two things. They're motivated by this deep desire to establish the glory of God on planet Earth, the supremacy of Yahweh God on planet Earth. But they're also, um, they, they also indicate a deep concern and desire to establish his people and renew the people's worship. It's this double, like, it's for the glory of God, but it's also for the people. And, it, and what I love about the Lord is anything he's allowing in your life, there's a, there's a dichotomy at work. It's for his glory, but it's also for your good. So you can trust, no matter how bad it feels or looks or seems, that the Lord is going to use, if you can trust him, the difficulty of your situation, both for his glory and for your good. So he's communicating even in these actions, you humans are infinitely flawed, but you're also infinitely valuable. Valuable enough for me to go to a cross and die. So here's the, a, a question for you today. Is are we living from a place of duty, religion, or from a place of delight, relationship? And then simultaneously, how responsive are we to God's discipline? Worship team, if you'll come back up, we're going to celebrate communion. I'm going to do something different today. I always say this out loud, but I'm going to actually just read it, and we're going to keep my comments to none. I think we passed out cups at the door. Does anyone need a little communion cup? One up here. Anybody else just stick your hand in the air? A couple over there. Thank you, Phil. Keep your hand up, Hank. He'll get over there in a minute. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and it is the Lord's Supper. And then I'm going to say nothing in this holy moment, and I'm going to break that bread and lift up that grape juice, which Jesus would have used actually wine. And then I'm going to bless the elements and then we're going to take them together.
okay? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. as we celebrate communion on this morning. Lord, would you call us out of the weight and bondage of performance-based religion and would you usher us into the joy and the delight of relationship with you? together and then I'll close this in just a minute. 